have either of you watched Crazy Six? No. I'm embarrassed to say no. If the trailer can't get you interested, that's a bad sign. Well, it had bad reviews. It had really horrible reviews. But on the other hand, some people thought enough of it to make a movie. Yes. So that must and have been something. And it, apparently. In the 25 years since my Uncle Galen's movie came out, my two aunts, Esther and Joanne, still had never seen it. In fact, no one in my family had. Do you want to watch the film? It's like... Yeah, <laughs> but I know that that wasn't his film. You yeah. You know what I mean? It's probably more interesting if you see the film and you read his manuscript. I think that would be way more interesting to see what they did to it. So that's what I did. Hi. Hi. It's so awkward to hug with a mic in your hand. I forgot that you were recording this. I'm glad you remembered, because I didn't. I'm trying. I invited myself over to our producer James Kim's house for a watch party. Um, Yeah, you want to head in? Galen lived an action-packed life, filled with crime, drugs, and heartbreak. And I was ready to finally see if the movie did it justice. Do we want to do lights on or lights off? Uh, lights off. Let's do it. Make make it cinematic. All right. When James and I sat down to watch, we opened up my uncle's script to see exactly what got changed. Three, two, one. The film opens with 60 whole seconds of text in bright pink font over the sound of gunshots. It's, as I like to say, doing way too much. Once there was hope. Now. Now. <laughs> Dark visions the, rule. The type, the type, the inconsistent type is. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like having the text on screen is a real lazy way of setting the scene. Yeah, it absolutely is. It's but ca- way cheaper than showing criminals, addicts, and lost souls. Love oh, God. Disguised as hatred. Suddenly, the movie turns into a music video. A woman looks straight into the camera in an extreme close-up. Why is she singing? What the? Oh, this film feels claustrophobic to me. (laughs) Then I realized the woman singing is Anna. But instead of being a Filipina from Oakland, she's a white woman from Slovakia. The movie didn't look or sound like how I expected. Every shot is just blasted with light. There are backlights, side lights. I felt like I could see more of the actor's hair than their faces. Oh, this is giving me like Twin Peaks vibes. Oh, yeah. It's like a red lounge and someone's singing. It's so David Lynch. It's very weird. Then I saw a soul writing credit. Written by Galen Yoon. Oh, there it is. Mm. The most personal scenes in my uncle's original script got cut from Crazy Six. No flashback to the funeral for Billy's father, or the one of Billy killing his childhood friend. None of the things that make Billy's character a sympathetic hero, haunted by his past. But then there are things that didn't change. Hey, choo-choo, Sherry. You're okay. 
the dialogue is pretty similar to what Galen wrote too. It is, yeah. But I think, like you said, the parts that got taken out completely remove make make the rest of it make no sense yeah. without it there. Yeah. I imagined my uncle having to erase himself out of his own life, replacing the city he grew up in with Eastern Europe, turning himself into a white guy from Florida, played by Raw Blow. Who made him do that? I, I, if I were him, I would be so angry. Like, I wonder if he even could have sat through this whole film. I feel let down by Crazy Six. I'm confused by it. And I want to know if the people who made it even tried to make a good movie. This is Magnificent Jerk, Episode 5, Bratislava. I'm Maya Lynn Sugarman, and I'm the only person in my family who's watched Crazy Six. To tell the story of how Crazy Six got made, I first got to tell you about another Asian-American guy who dreamed of making it in Hollywood. As a teenager in the 60s, Albert Pune lived on the island of Oahu. He worked at a gas station in the middle of nowhere. He'd sit at the counter and doodle pictures of movie sets. In a book about his career written by Justin DeClue, Albert wondered to himself, how am I going to leave this godforsaken place to make movies in Hollywood? He enlisted everyone in town as crew members to make short films. One of those films got the attention of a big-name Japanese actor. And at 18, Albert landed an internship in Japan. He found himself in the orbit of filmmaking legend Akira Kurosawa, the man who made Rashomon, Seven Samurai, and Ron. Albert became a visionary. By the time he passed away in 2022, he directed 56 features in his 60-year career. He's got a passionate fan base, people who love campy action films. And his specialty was essentially B-movies. And one of those movies was Crazy Six. I offered him my CV, and he shook it off and handed me a $5 bill and said, can you run over to Greenblatt's and pick me up a tuna on rye? Paul Rosenblum always loved movies. While he was working as a sailing instructor on Catalina Island, he'd dream of running Paramount Pictures. In his early 20s, Albert gave him one of his first jobs in the industry. By the 90s, Paul, Albert, and two other producers had started a production company called Filmworks, which brings us to one Sunday afternoon in 1996. I was at our production office on Ocean Park Boulevard in Santa Monica, where the Santa Monica Airport is. <laughs> Suite 155. Were there? Could you hear planes going by? Yes. And if you took a walk or an afternoon or morning constitutional, you'd watch the Tom Cruise, Harrison Ford, <laughs> Tom Hanks. A big part of the job was sorting through scripts. And on this afternoon, Paul came across one that caught his eye. Well, of course, those two great words fade in. Super San Francisco, super the Marina District night. A foghorn can be heard moaning in the distant background as the city is being shrouded with a blanket of moisture. An old Cadillac Seville that doesn't fit in with this pricey neighborhood is parked a couple of mansions away from its intended target, a beautiful six-bedroom mini estate. See, I want to know what's going on. I want to turn that page. 
The next day, Paul brought the script to the rest of the Filmworks team and pitched them on why it fell right into their wheelhouse. It was action, it was um, hard edge, uh, it was authentic. The script, obviously, was Galen's. It's all in the game. And Filmworks decided this would be their next picture. You know that saying, there's fast, cheap, and good, pick two? Well, I will come to learn that Filmworks, a company that churned out action B-movies, seemed to pick fast and cheap. In their first three years, they made 10 movies. Tomorrow, time runs out for Hong Kong. They debuted with Hong Kong 97, which takes place on the last day of British rule. Tonight, there's enough time for one more mission. They produced three sequels to Nemesis, a sci-fi franchise about a burnt-out L.A. cyborg cop. In a future where humans are slaves and cyborgs rule. And a movie about a janitor who saves the U.S. swim team when they get kidnapped at the Olympics. We have taken over the swimming complex and are holding the American women's swim team hostage. Now, the pride of America is in his hands. Whether it was a futuristic sci-fi or a historic drama, Filmworks movies always had action. Gunfights, gritty cops, heroic missions. The idea behind Filmworks was to make really expensive-looking, low-budget motion pictures. So for us to mount it on our own, we had to feed it through the Filmworks machine. And the key to that machine was Albert Pune. You need that creative visionary to really see it through from womb to tomb, from beginning to end. Albert's been called the new Ed Wood, the guy who directed cult classic horror movies in the 50s. Albert was known to work on two to three projects at once. Albert would come up with a title before he'd even come up with what the story was about. <laughs> I, mean, I just remember some of the titles. One was Grunion Runs, Atomic Romance. Tom Karnowski grew up with Albert in Oahu, and he became Filmworks' line producer. He balanced the budget and kept everyone on schedule. So when Tom talked about Albert's boundless creativity, I heard the anxiety in his voice. He was a guy that had an idea every day. Every day he had a new idea for a film. And he, sometimes he couldn't contain himself. I remember one time he came over, he'd been really motivated by Elton John's album with the Yellow Brick Road song. He just wanted to make a movie revolving around that music. <laughs> and so he says, let's go film something. There wasn't a hell of a lot of thought that went into a lot of these ideas, and we would just go out and shoot stuff. On nights when he couldn't sleep, Albert looked for inspiration. He'd watch music videos on MTV at 3 in the morning. In the early 80s, Albert and Tom decided to make the move from Oahu to L.A. In 1982, they released Albert's breakout film, The Sword and the Sorcerer. Listen now of a time long past when sorcery thrived and wild adventure was forever in the offing. They cost $4 million to make, and it made $39 million. After that, Albert got hired by a studio and inherited an adaptation of Captain America. But he got burned. The studio slashed his budget right before shooting started. They pushed him out of post-production and released a cut of the movie without him. People hated it. 
Albert was so upset, he swore to never watch the final film. And he refused to work with the Hollywood studio ever again. Albert was impatient in a way that all um, accomplished entrepreneurs are. He wanted to do it all alone. You know, he didn't want any interference or any, um, any of the baggage that comes uh, with collaboration. And it turns out, Albert's approach would have a direct impact on what happened to my uncle's script. So Albert wanted to move quickly, so that meant you kill the writer. Kill the writer. I had always assumed that my uncle was the one who had to write himself out of his own story, who had to replace himself with a white hero. But I was wrong. Albert Pune was the one who did that. Galen sold Filmworks the script, and that was it. He wasn't involved in making Crazy Six at all. Some directors get very collaborative with the screenwriter, and you do pass after pass after pass, and you do notes, and you do workshops, and you do read-throughs, and you do stage readings, and that's a really lovely process, and that's the right way to work. We, unfortunately, were moving like a bullet train and didn't have time uh, for any of those things, all of which are crucially important to the finished product. A lot of the people who made Crazy Six, like Tom, didn't even know it was based on a real-life story. He moved to L.A. without any experience, without knowing anyone, um, and he just started writing that screenplay. Yeah. So the original Crazy Six story involved Galen personally? Wow. Interesting. So we did quite a rewrite. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I guess it is pretty different. (laughs) The reality is, yeah, my uncle did sell his story and gave away his rights. That's just how it goes. It's always a really delicate conversation. Galen, give us your baby. And we're going to take your baby to Europe. And you do not get to babysit your baby in Europe. But it's a very gentle, delicate thing because you don't want to um, crush a soul. But why would Albert Pune, an Asian-American filmmaker, whitewash Galen's story and set it in Eastern Europe? To answer those questions, it turned out I'd need to first understand what it took for Filmworks to just get a movie made. It just... It was, it was rough around the edges, let me just put it that way. In March 1997, Tom Karnowski was in Bratislava. Filmworks was one month away from shooting Crazy Six. And the place was fresh out of communism, a perfect setting for an Albert Pune movie, gritty and post-apocalyptic. The city was crumbling, and it was incredibly cheap to shoot there. Meanwhile, Paul Rosenblum was back in L.A. trying to lock down their cast, The Filmworks approach was to get actors with name recognition, who didn't necessarily fit the characters they were playing so much as fit the business model. And we would focus on talent that had been theatrical and was perhaps experiencing a career decline, uh, but really still had tremendous value internationally in television and video. Burt Reynolds and Rob Lowe fit right into the formula. Burt was a huge star in the 70s and 80s, with movies like Smokey and the Bandit, He was a sexy, tough guy who once posed nude for Cosmo. But after a string of flops, Burt's career took a dive. Rob Lowe was a teen heartthrob in the 80s, 
till alcohol abuse and a sex tape got him in the tabloids. When Crazy Six came around, he was about seven years sober and trying to rebound his career. Meanwhile, Ice-T was jumping on the 90s trend of hip-hop artists pivoting to Hollywood. He'd already been working on another movie with Filmworks. I mean, that, those, those names just don't sound like they belong in the same movie. And it's, it's hilarious to say, you know, Rob Lowe, Ice-T, and Burt Reynolds. I mean, it's such a crazy cast. They might not have been A-listers at the time, but they still weren't cheap. We would cut to the chase and ask for the number. But they would usually throw out a really shocking number. And so we would go like this. And we would sort of catch our breath. We came up with a wonderful um, strategy uh, of overpaying talent for a very compressed period of time. Gosh, I want to say that I was 20, 21 years old. Because we would always, in the 90s, just kind of go hang out at our agent's office and smoke cigarettes in the offices. Ivana Milicevic plays the romantic lead in Crazy Six, Anna. She's gone on to act in a lot of big movies, Love Actually, Vanilla Sky, and Casino Royale. But at the time, unlike her male co-stars, she was new to the business. And one of my agents was like, oh, you just got an offer to do this movie in... Bratislava, called Crazy Six. They're like, you'll get two grand, the end. Do you want to do it? It's only two weeks. I was like, 100%. I mean, I didn't understand two weeks for a whole movie, but they're going to pay me to do a movie at all? I didn't really know what was going on in terms of, like, plutonium and things like that. But I was like, I loved my little part. I loved that, like, Eastern European thing. While Paul was in the Santa Monica Filmworks office rushing to negotiate with agents, Albert was making endless calls, too. He was still locking down financing from international buyers in different time zones. In between calls, he'd race to finish rewriting Galen's script. Nine hours ahead in Bratislava, Tom would get a nightly phone call. Hey, we got Rob Lowe. Hey, we got Burt Reynolds. He got faxes every day with new script pages, while still carrying on with pre-production. Yeah, it was stressful. It was very stressful. We had a, we had a, a, a credit card, and we would use the American Express credit card to finance everything we could. To hire a crew, Tom told me he worked with a local company that was willing to wait for paychecks. Most of the crew members came from the former Yugoslavia. And then all of a sudden you'd have an actor that who's committed to doing the film, which would who'd pull out. And so it was moments like that where, you know, all of a sudden potentially we could get left holding the bag for this hundred thousand dollar credit card bill and, and all the, you know, the crew that we owed money to. It was chaos. But that was Filmworks' M.O. And just like 14 times before, they pulled it off. So in April 1997, the cast made the 6,000-mile trek from L.A. to the Slovakian capital. I do remember when when Burt Reynolds first arrived in Bratislava, he slowly got out of the car with his assistant, who's also his, like, hairstylist. And he, he said... Where the fuck are we? Bratislava. Fuck me. Can't believe how long it took to get here. I mean, I think this town is perfect for me. 
I've never been in a town with so few brains and so many guns. Rob Lowe showed up to set with a fake beard and mustache. I'm pretty sure the facial hair was supposed to be a joke, but Albert liked it. So the way he showed up is exactly how you see him in the movie. You know, after I got busted that last time in Jacksonville, I hopped on a freighter. Thought I'd clear my head, maybe get off the pipe. He had his thing that he was doing, which was very mumbly, I feel like. Was he mumbling all the time? Yeah, yeah. And he was insistent on wearing that wig. So I didn't understand it, but I just decided I loved him. I wasn't there but three hours, and I was back on the pipe. Maybe you should go back. Maybe. Mario Van Peebles is in the movie, too. He played the character inspired by Tom Tom, the infamous leader of Galen's Oakland Chinatown gang. But in Crazy Six, he's a well-dressed Frenchman in a pinstripe suit. I'm going to need a nice pot of tea and some cranberry juice. Tom Tom used to carry a 38 revolver and a hatchet, but Mario cradled a diabetic chihuahua in a sleeveless knit sweater. Have you do have a lot of friends? I don't have a lot of friends. You're trying to kill my one loyal friend? She's sick now, you want to kill her? Apologize. I'm sorry. Not to me, you imbecile. To her, Abijou. I'm sorry, Abijou. I was there for two weeks. Rob Lowe was there for one week. Mario Van Peebles, one day. Burt Reynolds, one day. Ice-T, one day. This might have been Ivana's first movie, but even she could see how incredibly fast Filmworks moved. So the whole movie was shot, like all the scenes were shot over and over again on different days because we wouldn't have one actor. So they would do all with, you know, body doubles for like shoulders and hair. And uh, it was incredible. Like I was like, is this how they make movies? For most major action movies, it's not uncommon to film for almost three months. But Crazy Six wrapped up shooting in just two weeks. I started to understand why this movie turned out so badly. But what I still didn't get was why it looked so stylized. Why the lights? Why all the colors? Why the insane close-ups? Oh, wow. This seems like a pretty nice neighborhood. This is like uh, the kind of neighborhood that you'd see in like a modern family on ABC. Yes, yes. So me and our producer, James Kim, we found the guy who shot Crazy Six. Hi, it's so nice to meet you. Oh, wow. Thank you, Galen. He was not in the former Yugoslavia. He was 25 minutes away in Burbank. I was born with uh, one eye. Yeah, they tried to save it when I was in kindergarten, but it was too late and it never developed. This is cinematographer George Meradian. The only good thing that got me out of this was back in the day, uh, Vietnam and the draft, I would have gone to war, but uh, they didn't want anybody with one eye. I call myself a cyclops, but maybe in a good, good sense. Crazy Six was George's 20th movie with Albert. And even after that many projects, George told me he always tried to do something new and ambitious. Like with this movie, he used 20, even 30 light bulbs per shot. And there was a scene where uh, Burt Reynolds is talking to the girl in the hospital. 
Hello, Mr. Texas. How many times do I have to tell you? Just because you have a cowboy hat, you're not from Texas. And um, I had, I know. you see, there's a very strong light on the back of his head. This was burning with the brightness of a thousand suns. It was, it was so hot and so bright. But they blew everything out, so you looked stunning. And all of a sudden, I, I, I start see, seeing smoke. Those lights were so strong that it was starting to catch his, his head on fire. So we stopped. And I said, I'm sorry, but he said, George, as long as I look good, you can catch my head on fire. I said, Bert, it looks really good, you know. <laughs> I've decided the world is divided into two parts. Those that like Neil Diamond and those that don't. I don't. I love Neil Diamond. At some point while we were visiting, George got up and got something from his office. Ten minutes later, he came back with a manila folder. I found it unbelievable. Wow. Uh, God, okay. I, I bet Tom didn't have this, and I, I don't know. <laughs> no, he couldn't find it in his. He was very surprised he didn't have it. George had meticulously kept the files for every film he's worked on since the 70s, including the original shooting script for Crazy Six. It's covered with frantic handwritten notes. Uh, Pulling some ideas from. Tucked inside the front cover is a two-page letter, dated April 11, 1997. This is my printing instructions for uh, the colorist at the lab. You should have fun coloring our movie Crazy Six. Whatever you do, don't think television. Make our film as arty as possible. George wanted the film to look high contrast, with stark blacks and strong textures. Think operatic and theatrical, he wrote. Also some locations, like the nightclub, will have several different looks, and I would like to see each of those differences. Any questions, call... George Meridian. Hmm. When I first watched Crazy Six, I had a strong reaction to the colors. They seemed totally random. But it turns out George had a whole theory around them. And I assigned a color for each of the characters. And uh, inside, outside, day or night, kind of didn't matter. You know, Rob had that sort of lagoon blue, that sort of cyan uh, Burt Reynolds had it's kind of what I call a Dick Tracy yellow. He might have been the good guy, even though he was a reject and an outsider. Mario Van Peebles had that magenta. He was sort of a dandy and new from New Orleans. That, that felt appropriate for him. And all those shots in Crazy Six that felt confusingly claustrophobic, I just assumed they were trying to be overly artsy. But I was wrong about that, too. There was always a chance that it would be theatrical, if not here, then in Europe. But uh, it didn't matter. George actually shot the movie much wider, so it could be shown on the big screen. I was shooting for a theatrical experience because it just, that's what it meant to me. But Crazy Six ended up going straight to video. So George's wide shots got cropped into 4x3 to fit on a 90s television. George hasn't seen the film in its original format since 1997, when the movie wrapped. And I thought, this, this moves me, seeing her. I like her in the darkness. I and asked her, George uh, if he'd watch some of the movie with me. 
even if it was cropped. He said, sure, maybe he could appreciate it now with a little distance. So the lights are fading in and out. The more I learned about what it took to get this movie made, the more I started to see Crazy Six not as a rewrite of my uncle's life story, but as something totally separate. It started as Galen's baby, but then it became George's baby, and Paul's baby, and Tom's, and Albert's. Maybe a movie is more than what you see on the screen. In fact, maybe the movie itself is kind of unimportant. It's just the product of a bunch of different people whose childhood dreams led them to the same set. Do you keep in touch with um, any people from that time? Just had coffee with uh, Tom yesterday in Manhattan Beach. (laughs) We had a wonderful uh, reminiscence and some good laughs and some sadness. What did you, I was surprised you said sadness. What, what, what is the sadness? Uh, from? You know, probably Crazy Six was the height of our maturity. Um, but after maturity comes a period of stagnation. <laughs> and sometimes you repeat yourself or make the same movie or make the same mistake. And then you enter into a crisis. And our crisis uh, really occurred. Did anyone tell you this story? No. Paul told me the crisis happened a year after Crazy Six came out. In December 1998, they went back to Bratislava. And uh, Albert was at his absolute peak of powers. Uh, We were shooting, I think, three movies literally in 21 days, um, back to back to back, that model that we had fine-tuned and perfected so beautifully. They wrapped shooting and sent the film negatives back to L.A. by plane to get started on post-production. But half of the film never arrived. Paul and Tom tried to track it down for almost a week. Albert kept asking them, what's going on? Let's get to editing these movies. And we did not have the heart to tell Albert that we had lost his movies. And it was a real catastrophe. It was something that no one in the industry had ever experienced before. We were moving so fast that we were creating new solutions and we were creating new problems. After that, two of Filmworks' founders left the company. Crazy Six would be the penultimate project they pulled off before the big catastrophe. I I think Galen did bring that uh, authenticity, that grittiness, that reality, um, and that angst. I mean, it was—it's a really—it's a really tough um, story. And um, you know, how does Rob Lowe make that character sympathetic? The tone is real delicate, and. I'm not sure we got that right. I've talked to Paul a lot since this interview. I know he feels bad about the whitewashing. And it's so complicated, knowing that my uncle's work got rewritten by another Asian-American filmmaker. But I think the explanation is actually pretty simple. Hollywood thought people wouldn't care about an Asian-American story. And Albert was just following suit. He just wanted to make movies. I think we're in a different era, and I don't think we would um, alter your uncle's uh, vision today the way we did then. Um, I think there's a lot more sensitivity around all of that. But did it miss the mark? Yes, by a mile. Filmworks shut down in 2012. Paul Rosenblum became a character actor. He was in La La Land, straight out of Compton and winning time. 
Tom Karnowski became Ryan Johnson's go-to line producer. He worked on both Knives Out movies and did Star Wars The Last Jedi. And George Meridian just won his first Emmy for Outstanding Cinematography. He told me he'll always remember Albert as his real film school. We were very close in a, in a funny way. We were on such a wavelength. And um, I think he maybe have tapped into something of what I was feeling in, in the South, feeling an outsider. And, and he was sort of that way, too. Albert Pume was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis and dementia a few years ago. In November 2022, he passed away. I never got the chance to talk with him, but we messaged a few times on Facebook. I DM'd his wife, Cynthia, too. She wrote to me about her life with Albert. Eleven months before he passed, he was still working on new films. He put his bed in the closet to make space for an edit bay. In all our messages, the only time Albert ever mentioned my uncle was in our first exchange. He wrote that Galen was a great writer and really ahead of his time. It was nice to hear Albert acknowledge my uncle's talent, but it doesn't change what happened. I think a lot about how different this movie would have looked if Galen could have made the thing he envisioned, what it would have meant to him to finally see the things he wrote about his life on the screen. But Galen would get a second chance with another story and another script. This depicted Asians that were in the hood. There wasn't any roles like that. And I was like, yo, I come from the neighborhood. Like, gangsters, b-boys, rappers, like, yeah. you know. Yeah, I'm curious, what was your approach then to the character because you felt so much connected to it? No, I just I felt free, you know, like, oh, let's go. Like, And, the, and the, ang- the anger and the rage of, like, you know, it's hard to grow up in the hood. We're dealing with life and death issues. There's guns, there's people getting killed, there's drugs, there's people trying to make money, and it's hard. That's next time on Magnificent Jerk. Magnificent Jerk is an Apple original podcast produced by Pineapple Street Studios. It's written and hosted by me, Maya Lynn Sugarman. Our senior producers are James Kim and Eric Menel. Our producers are Melissa Akiko Slaughter and Maria Robbins Somerville. Our editors are Darby Maloney and Joel Lovell. Our senior engineers are Davy Sumner and Marina Pais. Mixing by Davy Sumner. Original music by Hannes Brown and Matthew Wong. Pineapple's head of sound and engineering is Raj Makija. Additional music courtesy of APM. Production assistance from Grace Chen, Himia Freeman, Gabe Kuwugale, Liz O'Malley, and Kristen Torres. Our cover art is by Joan Wong. Language and translation help from Judy Lay. It's All in the Game was written by Galen Ewan. Special thanks to Yoe Shaw, Stuart Sugarman, and Aaron Williams. James Kim and I are executive producers. The executive producers from Pineapple Street are Jenna Weiss-Berman and Max Linsky. Thanks for listening. <laughs> 